Roundtable was held on Sunday, May 25th, 2014, as part of the Canadian Historical Association annual meeting at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca. international sporting events are highly sexualized arenas, something that institutions such as the International Olympic Committee or the Commonwealth Games Federation have never been terribly comfortable acknowledging or addressing. Second, I'll highlight some continuities between the political campaigns that emerged in reaction to the Sochi Olympics and calls to boycott or move earlier sports mega events to alternative locations. I'm going to work my way through some fairly depressing examples, but I'm going to promise now to end on a reasonably optimistic note. Before the Sochi Games, I think the International Olympic Committee's most awkward engagement with questions of sexuality concerned mandatory gender verification tests, which were all the rage from an official standpoint during the 1960s. This was an era when a breakthrough in sex testing technology facilitated intrusive examinations to prove that a level playing field was maintained. In other words, that men were not entering races reserved for women. As historian Stefan Wiederker notes, the tests did not find what the officials were looking for. That is, rather than finding cheaters, men pretending to be women, the IOC <coughs> discovered, to its surprise, intersexual people. If you think the IOC is behind the times today when it comes to issues of human rights and sexuality, just imagine how ill-prepared it was in the 1960s to wrap its collective head around the notion that gender and sexual identity exist along a continuum. Undeterred, the IOC continued mandatory testing into the 1990s, at which point it opted to impose such examinations selectively, whenever an individual athlete's sexual identity was deemed to be suspicious. The timing here is not coincidental. The IOC eased up on these regulations just as the Cold War was coming to an end. For as Wiedeker and others have noted, gender verification tests and thus sexual identity at the Olympics were an ongoing element of the psychological battle during the Cold War, with so-called mannish communist female athletes serving as a source of alarm and paranoia amongst Western officials. Despite ongoing rhetoric championing the ideal of keeping sport and politics separate, something we continue to hear today, here was a case in which geopolitics directly shaped how competitions were carried out. Moreover, the IOC recognized that these invasive procedures offered collateral benefits. In 1972, IOC President Avery Brundage proudly announced that gender verification tests had served an aesthetic end. Women competitors, he declared, quote, were more feminine. When I came across this quote, I was reminded of FIFA President Sepp Blatter's 2004 suggestion that female soccer players compete in tighter shorts. Both statements suggest that when it's convenient, international sporting bodies are happy to seek out ways to directly promote selective ideals of gender and sexual identity, despite frequent claims that such organizations focus solely on sport. From a policy history perspective, then, there's little in the IOC's past that would lead us to think that it would have a tradition of progressive thinking to draw upon as it faced demands to respond productively to Russia's anti-gay legislation. But I also think there's an interesting social history angle to this as well. And we can look at this by recognizing that gatherings such as the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games can be highly charged sexual spaces. Not so much on the track or in the swimming pool, of course, but in the athletes' building. As James Buckley notes, fit bodies, sequestered in close quarters, coupled with a schedule that features high levels of stress, followed by release, provide no shortage of opportunities for sexual activity. As American swimmer Nelson Diebel so eloquently put it, quote, if you like six packs, see the gymnasts. Like butts, go to track and field. The only thing you're deprived of is fat. If you're the rare athlete who likes sedentary bodies, you're out of <laughs> Team officials and event organizers have long been aware of this situation. From what I've been able to tell when it came to the Commonwealth Games, 
team officials would intervene with strict warnings to their athletes to stay focused on their competitive responsibilities, while the organizers responded with so-called chastity fences that separated the men's and women's dormitories. By the end of the 20th century, health officials were intervening by ensuring that the requisite number of condoms were available. Apparently, this was no small task. I'm not generally recognized for my strength in quantitative research, but I can confidently report that at the 1994 Commonwealth Games, 2,500 athletes secured some 14,000 condoms. At the Delhi Games in 2010, which boasted 7,000 com competitors, so many con used condoms were flushed down the Games Village toilets that officials declared a plumbing emergency. <laughs> in short, sexual activity and international sporting events enjoy something of a symbiotic relationship. And this is something that all host nations and cities establish plans to deal with well in advance. I hope at some point that an astute observer will come along and explore the connection between such local event planning and broader state concerns about sexual activity and propaganda in Russia as they played out in 2014. I would hazard a guess, though, that in their investigation they will come across not only instances of amorous exchanges between athletes, but also fairly routine instances of homophobia, not simply among politicians and officials, but among athletes as well. In researching the history of the Commonwealth Games, I've come across a few disturbing examples that serve to remind us that athletes, too, can be conduits for conservative gender ideals. For example, I came across the story of Bruce Walsh, a strapping policeman from Sydney, Australia, who served as the weightlifting coach for Western Samoa at the 1974 Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, New Zealand. Under the delightful headline, he won't expose his form. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that Walsh passed up an opportunity to march in the opening ceremonies when he learned that he would be expected to wear, quote, a native dress featuring a lava lava skirt. Quote, there's no show of me getting into a skirt, he explained. Imagine the ribbing I'd get back home. Sixteen years later at the Auckland Games in 1990, the Australian team was rocked repeatedly by press reports of dissension and misbehavior in the athletes' village. None was more unseemly, the press noted, than an episode in which 1,500-meter runner Michelle Baumgartner was publicly subjected to verbal abuse by an unnamed male teammate who urged her to show off her penis. Media reports noted both the tendency for the athletes to close ranks and protect the identity of the perpetrator, as well as the Australian officials' desire to refrain from pursuing firm disciplinary action. In short, a wide, gap between <clears throat> a wide gap between professed ideals of inclusivity and the reality of modern big-budget sporting events is not just something that plagues high-ranking officials, but also athletes themselves. The other key point that deserves some context, I think, is the nature of political protests at and about the Olympics. In the lead-up to the Sochi Olympics, some called on the IOC to move the games to a country with a more progressive human rights record. The lead-up to the Games also featured a flurry of calls and petitions for nations such as Canada to boycott the Games. Neither scenario was pursued, but in both cases, the demands for action and the lack of action that followed have historical precedence worth considering. Opponents of China's human rights record actively protested the decision to award the 2008 Olympics to Beijing, but the IOC decided that the show must go on. In 1968, 10 days before the Summer Olympics in Mexico City, Mexican authorities massacred an untold number of student protesters, but the IOC decided that the show must go on. Four years later in Munich, with 11 Israeli athletes killed by Arab terrorists, IOC President Avery Brundage was adamant that, quote, the games must go on. There's a fairly consistent pattern here. A combination of factors, including an unwillingness to nullify years of work and the billions of dollars it takes to prepare to host the games, a desire to justify claims that sport and politics should not mix, and a belief that a greater good is served by ensuring that such international gatherings are not cancelled, whatever the cost, ensures that the games once allocated to a host nation stay allocated to that nation. The IOC is not alone here. Attempts by, Aboriginal, by Australian Aboriginal rights protesters to force Brisbane, Australia to give up its right to host the 1982 Commonwealth Games proved unsuccessful as well. <clears throat> With games unlikely to be moved or cancelled then, 
activists have turned to other methods of protest. Most obviously, these have taken the form of boycotts. In 1980, an American-led boycott of the Moscow Olympics protested the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Four years later, the USSR responded by boycotting the Olympics in Los Angeles. Closer to home, African-led boycotts of the 1976 Montreal Olympics and the 1978 Commonwealth Games in Edmonton attempted to hammer home objections to South Africa's apartheid policy. As Barbara Key's recent work on the 1936 Berlin Olympics shows us, one of the key tensions at play in such cases pits pro-boycott voices, arguing that the most effective political strategy is to isolate the offending Asians, while anti-boycott voices maintain that constructive engagement is the only way forward, and that it would be unfair to ask athletes to make sacrifices to address situations that diplomats and international sports officials had failed to alleviate. Mark Tewksbury, Canada's openly gay former Olympic gold medalist, argued the latter position quite persuasively during the Sochi Games. Given this context, what forms of protest <coughs> remain? I'll conclude with two intriguing examples. The first highlights the extent to which, the Olympic, to which Olympic protest has become commodified. In the lead-up to the Sochi Games, American Apparel offered progressive consumers the opportunity to voice their displeasure with the Russian authorities and the IOC by purchasing clothing that featured Principle 6 of the Olympic Charter, which ostensibly prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. I was wearing my t-shirt on the day that Lyle emailed me inviting me to participate in the panel. Not everyone was impressed with this form of protest. One commentator emphasized that such actions pale in comparison to Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists on the podium in Mexico City to protest the flight of African Americans in the United States. I think that's a fair point. But if one leaps through John Carlos's recent autobiography, you can get a pretty firm sense of the penalties that are meted out to athletes who lock horns with Olympic officials by suggesting that sport is inherently political. In one of the more devastating asides in the book, Carlos reveals that with his athletic career effectively terminated, he was, he was reduced to pitching Puma sweatsuits and hoodies at a stand at the Munich Olympics. Instructed to hand out the gear to anyone keen to sport the Puma brand, he did as he was told. And then he reeled in horror when he realized that the terrorists had visited his stand to secure clothing that would help them blend in with the Olympic athletes in order to kidnap and murder the Israelis. Let me try to conclude then on a positive note. In a development that's closer to home, as Canadians sought ways to express their opposition to the Russian legislation and their support for LGBT athletes in Sochi, rainbow flags were raised on public buildings across the country. Vancouver and Montreal were early adherents to this symbolic showing. That this was happening in larger urban centers did not really surprise me. But I was genuinely shocked and pleased to see pride flags raised in New Brunswick at the provincial legislature, on university campuses, and at City Hall in Fredericton by a mayor who in the 1990s had refused to publicly declare a gay pride day. It's almost as if Russian opposition to gay rights and the muscle memory built up during the Cold War has provided officials and civic leaders with increased political space to publicly declare what not too long ago was well beyond the pale of political culture. And that, I think, is a positive news unanticipated legacy of the social networks. Thank you. Chairperson, uh, friends and colleagues, uh, thanks for coming tonight. I want to thank my fellow panelists for uh, participating. And uh, this is the famous t-shirt that uh, Michael referenced, the Principle 6 t-shirt. It is the non-discrimination clause in the Olympic Charter. I read uh, reports by, of comments by a number of IOC officials in January, including Mr. Richard Pound, the Canadian IOC representative, uh, which were downplaying the impact of Russia's so-called anti-gay propaganda law. And Mr. Pound was quoted as saying, well, at least they are ac executing anyone. So I was going to prepare a fairly detailed deconstruction and refutation of uh, Dick Pound's remarks, but you know, I really don't need to. I just need to invite him and the other members of the IOC to read Principle 6 of the Olympic Charter. And I think that does the trick. Uh, this panel is part of the rollout 
of the CHA executive's 15th of January letter to President Putin. We wanted to go on record as affirming the human rights of historians to study the past, free from coercion and intimidation, while also showing our support for our LGBT sisters and brothers who are under attack in Russia. Today I want to speak on the implications of the Russian anti-gay law for the practice of history and suggest that our own prior history of anti-gay repression here in Canada helps illuminate this issue. I do not have the benefit of first-hand experience of Russia, like Erica and other specialists, um, but I hope that my experience of researching aspects of LGBT history in Canada will be relevant. As well, I will draw on the observations of practitioners of the humanities and social sciences who are close to the situation in Russia, including Alexander Kondakov, Mariana Murovieva, Laurie Essig, and Dan Healy, who kindly shared their advice. Despite many social, cultural, and political differences in the evolution of our respective countries, the currently precarious situation of queer people in Russia is not foreign to Canadian experience. The reports of systemic state-sanctioned prosecution and discrimination in Russia, accompanied by random, officially unsanctioned hate crimes, have close historical uh, parallels in Canada and in the not very distant past. And in fact, hate crimes are still at very high levels uh, for LGBT people relative to other targeted groups. Our experience in Canada teaches us that the greatest enemy of historically disadvantaged groups is silence. In its anti-gay legislation, the Russian government has focused its efforts on silencing sexual minorities and anyone else publishing or contemplating publishing research or commentary on LGBT history, society, and culture. Imagine for a minute what Canadian history would look like if we were forbidden to write about the experience of French Canadians, or Jewish Canadians, or Canadian women, what happens to a country's culture when entire category of humanity is deemed off-limits to historical discourse? And yet that is more or less what happened here in Canada, uh, where pervasive silence over more than a century after Confederation inhibited the assertion and exercise of rights and freedoms by LGBT people, much as silence currently serves the forces of repression in Russia. Um, in an article on same-sex experience of Western Canada's settlement era, which will shortly be coming out in the uh, Journal of Canadian Studies, I examined the closet as a necessary survival mechanism between about 1870 and 1945. For persons animated by same-sex desire, the closet was a pragmatic tactic, enabling same-sex interactions in a hostile social environment. Dan, Daniel Schluter, Dan Healy, and Alexander Kondakov have similarly written on the pervasiveness of the closet in Soviet and post-Soviet era Russia, where it likewise facilitated social and interpersonal interactions in contexts of criminalization and marginalization. A problem for sexual minorities in both Canada and Russia was that, while the closet helped facilitate some interactions, the resort to covert covertness undermined the capacity for individual and community identity formation, necessary prerequisites to the assertion of a marginalized group's human rights. It seems probable that in Canada, the closet delayed uh, social and human rights advances for many years by keeping LGBT people invisible, out of sight and out of mind. It was only after lesbian and gay people came out publicly in sufficient numbers and demanded equality that change became possible a very recent development dating from the We Demand March on Parliament Hill in 1971 and the gay liberation movement that succeeded it. The discipline of history can help advance the status of marginalized groups by shining light on past injustices while documenting their persistence through assorted challenges. Conversely, his history can be a regressive force, reinforcing the marginal status of minorities by ignoring their collective past and cont contributing to a general veil of silence. For the practice of history, the road to silence has involved at least four junctures of decision-making and practice, as documented by the Haitian historian Michel Rolf Couillot. Quote, the moment of fact creation, the moment of fact assembly, the moment of fact retrieval, and the moment of retrospect retrospective significance or the making of history. The role of fact creation and assemblage in enabling or conversely inhibiting historical discourse can be illustrated by a relatively recent example from Western Canada. In 1987, my partner Ron and I participated in the campaign to convince members of the Manitoba legislature to amend the province's Human Rights Act to include sexual orientation 
among its um, prohibited grounds of discrimination. In the debate in the legislature, then leader of the opposition and future Premier Gary Philman endorsed a comment attributed to former Premier Ed Schreier, quote, in my opinion, if allowed to become too visible in society, it, meaning homosexuality, cannot help but have a negative and detrimental effect on the younger generation, unquote. Philman and Schreier were endorsing essentially the same position expressed by members of the Russian parliament in 2013 when debating the anti-gay propaganda law echoed in recent statements by Vladimir Putin. The premise was the same. Same-sex sexuality allegedly threatens young people and therefore must be silenced. The charge was classic fear-mongering because there is no scientific evidence to support it. A year later, I accepted an invitation from the Provincial Archives of Manitoba to serve on its Oral History Grants Committee. Among the projects we deemed worthy was the application by a Winnipeg LGBT group for $10,000 to carry out historical interviews with lesbian and gay elders. Years later, I was privately briefed on the, fo the follow from this small disbursement. After learning of the grant, the, the Minister of Culture, Heritage and Recreation took the provincial archivist to task and demanded that it be rescinded. To his credit, the archivist refused to comply with this demand and fortunately was not fired for his resistance. Still, this incident from only 25 years ago shows the lengths to which politicians were prepared to silence, to go to silence LGBT people by seeking to prevent the creation of materials documenting our history. A similar scenario unfolded in Alberta in 1997, when then uh, Provincial Treasurer Stockwell Day learned of the grant to the Red Deer Museum for a Lesbian and Gay uh, Oral History Project and demanded that it be rescinded. Again, the clear message was that proponents of LGBT history needed to be silenced. These attacks on lesbian and gay oral history were prompted by the perception that such archival materials and historical writing would make LGBT people more visible and intolerable affront to the proponents of marginalization. My colleague Alexander Kontakov of St. Petersburg, Russia, has written of the role of the 1934 Stalinist criminalization of gay sex mentioned by Erica. I think he gave 34, but anyway, 33 or 34, enforcing sexual minorities underground and uh, rendering them invisible. For Western Canada, my own studies on male same-sex experience identify similar trends. Increasing state repression following the 1890 Gross Indecency Law uh, enabled, enabled the silencing of same-sex sexuality, achieved in one case through the informal exiling of men convicted of same-sex activities in Regina, and in many other cases through jailings for victimless crimes, so-called crimes. The repression peaked in the 1940s and presaged the federal anti-gay, anti-lesbian national security campaign of the late 1950s and 1960s as documented by Patricio Gentile and Gary Kinsman. Authoritarian state forces succeeded in thwarting active resistance through coercive interrogations and intimidation of gay men as discussed in my article on uh, Edmonton's same-sex trials of 1942 in Archivarium. Only by exposing such past injustices and public affirming, publicly affirming the human rights of all citizens will we be able to begin to move through and beyond these dark corners of our history. Other stages in the imposition of silence are sometimes more subtle than political attacks and police bullying, but no less inhibiting in their potential effects on the writing of history. For historians, it's these last two phases of Trouillot's silencing process that are most salient. That is, the making of narratives and the writing of history. As professional historians, we recurrently make decisions whether or not to pursue uh, research topics, consult particular collections, ask specific questions of our materials, or decide how to assemble these materials into narratives. Until very recently, a typical outcome of these determinations uh, dealing with these issues was to avoid lesbian, gay, and transgender dimensions of research topics, ignore collections documenting queer history, pass over questions relating to sexual minorities, um, and omit inclusion of LGBT experience in our historical narratives. Canada has never had an anti-gay propaganda law, and so most of these constraints were self-imposed by historians, an illustration of the role of internalized homophobia and self-censorship in regulating historical discourse. Notwithstanding recent progress, we still have a long way to go to be truly inclusive regarding the experience of LGBT people among other historically disadvantaged minorities, not only in specialized topical treatments, but in survey textbooks in Canadian regional and national history. 
These equity issues confronting us in Canada nevertheless pale in comparison to the enormous challenges facing Russia's LGBT community. These include the continuing legacy of Stalinist anti-gay oppression, widespread fear and ignorance across Russia of gender and, uh, sexual and gender identity minorities, and the current pact between the Russian Orthodox Church and the country's authoritarian leader, Mr. Putin, to crack down on sexual difference. To state-sanctioned discrimination, we can add the scourge of hate crimes, so chillingly revealed in the documentary Hunted in Russia, recently broadcast in the CBC's The Passionate Eye. Unlike Canada, Russia apparently does not have a well-established tradition of officially sanctioned human rights codes to which oppressed groups might turn for support. LGBT people face a daunting challenge in Russia against the entrenched homophobia existing at virtually every level. Those of us who are fortunate enough to live in freer circumstances need to continue to stand with our brothers and sisters wherever our support might be of assistance. Beyond issues of basic human rights for LGBT Russians, for historians everywhere, any imposed legal, social, cultural, and political restrictions on scholarly inquiry are intolerable to the pursuit of knowledge. Knowing the destructive effects of prior silences in our own history, we have a moral obligation to support free expression and scholarly inquiry, and to show our solidarity with groups and peoples confronting systemic discrimination analogous to struggles in our own country's history. One of the most important parts of the Canadian Historical Association's mandates is to defend the human rights of historians, and the CHA has taken a principled position in opposing Russia's anti-gay propaganda law. It is important that we continue to encourage the unfettered study of the past everywhere, essential to the building and maintenance of democracy and freedom, whether in Russia, Canada, or elsewhere. Thank you. letter to Russian President Vladimir Putin in the context of its long-standing defense of the rights of historian and its promotion of a history which is respectful of human rights. First, by speaking of the history of this kind of advocacy within the CHA, a task for which uh, I have relied much on the contribution of Marielle Campo at the CHA office, and then more largely of Canada's place in the transnational movement of human rights. And here I have to thank Dominique Clema, uh, one of the main historians of human rights who is with us tonight. By offering support in favor of the LGBT historians of Russia and to, uh, in Russia and to historians from elsewhere unable to write freely about Russia, uh, Russia's past, Canada's CHA members have honored the tradition of international solidarity in front of persecution, and of reference to universal notions of a common humanity, which are at the very core of the history of human rights. I will argue that the anti-gay laws of Russia and the current campaigns against them show that while academic and sexual freedom based on human rights are becoming, and I cite the Polar Dictionary of Transnational History, are becoming central normative issues within world politics enshrined in numerous treaties and conventions, they are still at the mercy of states which are at the same time leading defenders or, or of and leading threats, uh, leading defenders of and leading, leading threats to human rights. So first, human rights in the defense of historians and academic freedom. The protest on the occasion of Sochi comes from a history of defense of academic freedoms. The first core value of the CHA statement on research ethics is its commitment and eyesight to free and open inquiry adhering to the ideal of academic freedom. The professional defense of its members is at the center of a professional association. In the early years of the CHA from 1922, this took many the form of efforts for the recognition of professional standards for the delineation and the guarantee of the profession's competence. For the CHA, Expressing the defense of academic freedom and professional autonomy in terms of human rights is a more recent phenomenon, which dates from the 1980s mainly. It seems to have partly come from a more explicit commitment to the defense of the interests of women and of graduate students within the profession, an instance amongst many when gender-based social movements contributed to the shaping of human rights discussion in Canada, and then I quote, uh, uh, my colleague Miriam uh, 
of the importance of the notion of human rights over time. Samuel Moyne's much debated and recent book, The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, argues for a late start and for the fact that the notions of me a meaningful role of human rights in international political history uh, is only uh, starting in the 1970s and it was led by, it was provoked by the, it led to the end of the Cold War in the, in the late 1980s. In many ways, uh, Samuel Moyne's thesis fits the CHA story. It's the 1970s, the 1980s, not only for the timing of its explicit engagement with human rights, but also for the prevalence of East-West tensions in that particular case of advocacy. Much of the production since then reads like a series, uh, the production of the history of human rights, reads like a series of discussion of Moyne showing that this rights revolution, to use the expression of Canadian human rights intellectual Michael Ignaciev, was not sudden, and that its achievements are precarious. My colleagues on this panel are documenting, have documented many aspects of this checkered history. In matters of the rights of intimacy and family life, to use against Ignaciev's word, Canada can claim some measure of leadership. In 69, the criminal law was that punished sodomy by up to 14 years in jail was amended by the Liberal government to allow sex between consenting adults of the same sex if they were at least 21 years old. In 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that all human rights legislation in Canada had to protect sexual orientation. And in 1977, 22 years earlier, Quebec was one of the first jurisdictions in the world to ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. In many ways, Canada's distinct legal and political institutions and legacies, which had initially much more to do with discrimination against ethnic and racialized communities, later helped human rights-based claims about gender and sexuality to be heard. Since then, the legalization of marriage and the many public measures to enforce this stance have served as a model in many countries. To appear to be more rapid than elsewhere, these changes are no less problematic. For one, they have rarely come out of a peaceful road towards a more liberal society, as Lyle's paper reminds us. And the struggles need to be remembered, not only because they still exist, albeit to a lesser extent, but also because they call for vigilance and they call for some humility. And here I would like to mention Helen Jefferson's recent book on sexual, uh, Ellen Jefferson Linsky's recent book on uh, sexual diversity and the Sochi uh, 2014 Olympics, which is just out in 2014. And I have brought some uh, little leaflets because we did not invite her because we were not aware of her book when we put the panel together. And I forgot the leaflets in my hotel room. So for the record, I've uh, said it and my apologies for, to Helen. Uh, Muslim scholars studying human rights in cross-cultural perspectives and re recent critics of the anti-Russian biases of Western diplomats insist on the recent nature of some discrepancies to minimize the easy dichotomies between East and West, as Erika's papers has done so well today, and between North and South. New historians of human rights warn similarly of the new form of racial and class exclusions that may happen within queer communities uh, and might be left unattended by the rhetoric of sexuality-based rights. So in conclusion, why Sochi and why this campaign? The CHA's capacity for advocacy is not only dependent on its principles, but also on its resources in time and energy. The decision to write the letter to President Putin came after careful discussion within the executive on the mandate and the energies of the association. Examples of inhibitions to free expression were many, such as the Russian culture minister's public denial of Tchaikovsky's same-sex orientation. But for those outside wishing to be read and find, and, and for those outside wishing to be read and find documents there, and for that section, I rely a lot on what uh, Lyle and I discussed. As an association aiming to represent all serious students of history in Canada of every field, including Russian history and committed to the values of non-discrimination, fairness and equality in the practice of the discipline, the CHE could not accept this situation. In addition, intellectual exchanges with practitioners of the humanities and social sciences within Russia 
many of whom are LGBT people, had long revealed the existence of community engaged in the scholarly study of LGBT uh, uh, society and history, and they needed the CHE support and solidarity. History can only thrive as a discipline when everyone is given an equal opportunity to study it, and any form of such discrimination is contrary to Canadian law and the values of Canadian, the Canadian historical profession. And I will finish by quoting Dominique Clément, who kindly offered these words to reinforce uh, what I was saying in my paper. Canada has a long history of promoting human rights abroad, and to do so using our own legal system as a framework that other countries can adopt. It was one of the first nations in the world to link, to a degree, human, uh, um, uh, their human rights to their politics of, uh, and their policies of foreign aid. We have one of the oldest human rights institutions in the world. Organizations like the CHA can play a constructive role in informing countries around the world and places like Russia about its human rights system. We have experience creating a successful system that protects gays and lesbian albi imperfectly. Perhaps if we could promote our legal system in Russia, it might prevent such abuses in the future. Thank you. Merci beaucoup aux quatre conférenciers. Nous allons maintenant, euh, nous allons maintenant, c'est le temps de la discussion et des questions. Nous avons quand même encore euh, 20-25 minutes pour ce faire. Uh, please identify yourself and tell to whom uh, your comment is uh, addressed or question. Qui veut être le premier ou la première? Russian history and values, that's not a Sovietness. 
um, and, and, and we are now committed, this is why uh, Khrushchev releases so many prisoners, for instance, from the Gulag. Uh, we are, we, this was illegal, we're for rule of law. So it doesn't quite get to your question, but there's, there's been moments where, you know, it's again not it's just a, a continuity of lack of human rights, I don't think. Um, but at the same time, whenever I sort of say things like that, I feel like I'm apologizing for this, the Soviet Union a little bit. There's horrific human rights abuses in the Soviet Union. There's no freedoms for LGBT people even after 1945. So um, in some, I think it's continuity and a break in what Putin's doing. I think he's, he's reaffirming, re-persecuting uh, things that, that have not been illegal since 1991. Yeltsin decriminalized homosexuality in the early 90s. There was a different path going on, and he, Putin has made a decision to, to re-engage with this and make it illegal again when he didn't have to. It's not just a, he's continuing some older thing. I think he's really deciding to do it anew, and I'm still grappling myself with why, and historians, like, political scientists are doing great work on this, and the historians are like, what do we do with this? Um, so it's, it's complicated, I guess. Hi, by the way, I think I knew you back in the yeah. day. Question, commentary, Nicole. I was intrigued by this. I don't. I forget the expression. The gender verification. The, yeah. The, Uh, intellectuals proposed papers to give at this conference. All of them were 
all of these 14 were accepted, everyone had their visa denied by the Canadian government. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of policing uh, still going on. Um, the Refugee Board, when people claim refugee status in Canada on the basis of um, their sexual orientation, a study uh, that was headed up by a team, uh, by, led by Lydia Namaste at Concordia, showed that the Refugee Board was saying if women didn't look like butches and men didn't look effeminate, they said they were lying and rejected their claims. So they're, they're deciding whether or not your claim is authentic based on incredibly outdated ideas of gender behavior. So there are many, many ways in which our state is perpetuating incredibly homophobic uh, ideas of policing people. And then, of course, we have the case of Trinity Western University. Um, <laughs> so you're not. So I don't need to tell you. So I think we need to be careful. Um, I also wanted to say, um, and again, this is just a friendly response. I'm really, I should begin by saying that I'm very, very, very appreciative of the CHA taking this kind of stance. Um, <coughs> On this particular issue, I think it's I think it's wonderful, um, but I, I don't know if I mis misunderstood you, Dominique. But I think at the end of your paper, you said something about um, Russia perhaps benefiting from our legal history, uh, legal traditions. Did I? I don't want to respond to it. I misunderstood you. Benefiting from it, not that maybe there's something to offer that there are things in our own history that might be interesting for others if we do the history of what's positive. Right, and my, my that, that may be true. Like we know South Africa, for example, is the first constitution that adopted sexual orientation protection, and their constitutional lawyers were Canadian. So they were, you know, just happy that that means for the moment people were ready to do that. So I, on that basis, that we've seen how Canadian legal scholars and constitutional lawyers have been able to be really helpful. But none of you mentioned how the lesbian gay community in Russia responded, and what they called upon the international community to do, which was not boycott. And I think that's something we can sometimes overlook is actually to turn to the people there, the intellectuals, the activists who are there, and say, how can we support you in what you're doing? Because what you're doing makes sense. You know your own context. We have our context, and we've made that point really, really well, right? We, we're so quick to judge, you know, Russia, right? And that's our framework. But they have their own framework, and they know that their political strategies best, right? So to look to what they're doing, what they're thinking, and the ideas they have, and to assist them in seeing those uh, come forward. So just a few thoughts on that really yeah. uh, provocative panel that uh, we had tonight. We had a discussion about, and a lot of the advocates from that festival, do we only sign it ourselves, or do we ask people in Russia to, you know, and do we name organizations that we support, or do we ask, you know, to what extent do we involve Russian colleagues? And we decided not to. And maybe uh, like to say why. Uh, well, we tried to correspond to the degree possible with people we could get in touch with. Some in Russia, LGBT, or scholars of LGBT, Russian history, both within Russia and outside of Russia. So there's Alexander Kondakov in St. Petersburg. He's a sociologist. He's written historical papers for he's with a research institute there. Mariana Merovieva, who is Russian, but she's now teaching in England. And then Dan Healy is English and he teaches at Oxford, and Laurie Essig who teaches in Connecticut at Millbury uh, College. Because uh, we had received some expressions of concern along these lines, you know, whatever we do, we shouldn't be doing any harm. And we, that was very much. But I can report that basically um, the advice we got from Alexander and Mariana Laurie and so on is that we should speak out on this. Now, we didn't comment on the boycott, and I agree with you, the boycott is a problematic issue, and you get views on both sides of it. But I think the, the general advice we got is we should speak out. Silence is the enemy. They, they want this. And I assured Alexander, for example, well, I said, thank you, but I assure you, I won't use your name. Well, no, he wanted me to use his name. So that's why I'm using his name. Um, and so these, these are heroic people, people like him, uh, because uh, I think they're really sick in their necks of it. But in a sense, we know from our experience in Canada, it takes some people sick in their necks of it, uh, because that's how we can break through our biggest enemy, which is silence. <coughs>
One last question. Merci beaucoup aux, uh, aux quatre conférenciers. It was a very enlightened uh, evening. Merci.
You've been listening to a recording of a roundtable discussion, Sochi and Beyond, Russia's anti-gay legislation, human rights, and the practice of history. The roundtable was held on Sunday, May 25th, part of the Canadian Historical Association annual meeting held at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.